That's cool. Uh, I have a friend who is a retired executive chef, um, and he used to attend the church that I pastor in Alabama. He's now living in Maine. But um, when he was there, we would have these uh, fundraising dinners uh, at our church about every, I don't know, once or twice a year. We uh, had a, a multi-million dollar debt, uh, which they recently retired, which was exciting. But uh, we would have these dinners, and he would, uh, he would do the, the cooking for us. And one thing I, I watched with uh, Robert as he would do things is he had a real process for how he would put this together. First thing he would do is he would design the menu. And then he would figure out, okay, how many people are we expecting to come out to this thing? And then he would go out and he would purchase the food. And what really amazed me is how little he purchased. Uh, he really knew how to make food work for him uh, and really cut down our food costs at the church. And then, I, you know, the day before, he'd come in and he would do cold prep and he would do things that he could get ready for. And the day of the event, you know, he would start that morning and he'd get the ovens and all that stuff going and things like that. And then he would kind of determine, you know, if some of us were helping, which I like to cook, so I would... I would work with him in there, and so he would, he would assign us, you know, you do this, you do this, you take care of this, this is how I want this to look, and things like that it was really cool. And then I would watch him, and he would decide which foods were going to come out first, and then how he was going to put things together, and then when, right before the event, he would get the servers in there, and you handle this section, you do this section, so we kind of had all that laid out. And then the fun really started when he would start plating the food. And he would have everything, and he would plate food, you know, and he'd wipe it there, and we'd out the door, out the door, out the door, and things like that, and then he would clean up. So I noticed he had this process for how he did these dinners. Let me ask you this. On a smaller scale, when you had holiday dinners here just a few weeks ago, uh, those of you who cooked, did you have some sort of a process in place for what you did? Did you kind of sit down and say, this is what we're going to eat when all the family's getting together, did you kind of design the menu? Did you kind of determine, okay, these are the relatives, these are people are coming over. You probably did the same thing. You went out and purchased the food. Maybe you got some things ready the day before. I know the day of, my mom and Laura, they got in there and started cooking and things the day before and then the day of. And then that day of the event, you serve the food and clean up. So you kind of, if you had cooked for a big family dinner, you probably had a process, right? Because if you don't have a process, guess what happens? chaotic, right? I mean, people aren't getting their food, the food's cold, people are getting frustrated, they're getting angry and things like that. Not everybody gets to eat, the kitchen's a mess and things like that. So having a process is really, really important. If you're in business or the church or anything like that, having a process is really important because it increases your chances of accomplishing your goal, right? If you have a process in place, helps you clarify what's expected, helps you allocate the resources that you need to allocate, provides opportunities for mentoring and oversight and all sorts of things. So a process is simply a sequence of events that leads to a result. Well, this morning, I want to continue this series on mission statement. I was praying for you, so I was like, God, is there something else I need to talk about? I mean, I'm open, Holy Spirit, just tell me. No, no go to James chapter 1, preach on that. But I just felt like God said, nope, stick right there with the game plan, so this is where we're at. And um, we're kind of, as I view Warren Baptist right now, kind of in this interim period, is we're kind of in this rebuilding of our foundation. It's kind of, I kind of view it almost as a restart in some ways for us here at Warren. And, and I told you that the first step I felt like was we need to have a common vision. And we've been working on that as a church. And uh, we've been working on our common vision. I left my clicker up there. See, I'm really out of sorts. But just to show you on the screen... But we've been working on our vision, and our proposed vision, we'll be voting on in a few weeks, is to be a diverse family 
united in impacting all people for Christ. And so as we sat down as a church, and then later the, the leadership team kind of fashioned this statement, we'll be voting on a few weeks, we said in the future, we want Warren Baptist to be a diverse church. We want to be multicultural. We want to be multigenerational. Okay? So we want to be a diverse church. We want to be on the same hand, though, a family. Even though we have different backgrounds culturally, educationally, uh, we come from different uh, areas, we all want to be still a family, and we want to be united. We want to be working together for one goal. And what we're working towards is impacting all people, beginning here in Warren Township, around the world, like the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, and we're doing it for Christ. Okay? And so this was just kind of, and again, this is not a big theological statement, this is just saying, this is what we want to be as a church in the future. So wouldn't it be cool one day to have this room full of people that we have all different, uh, you know, white, black, Hispanic, whatever, yellow, I don't care, all callers of us in here. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great to have young people and older people and all of us here and just, we're all, you know, here together as a family, united by Christ. That's our vision. That's what I would love to see. I don't know about you, but I'd love to see this place full one day of people. And, you know, there's 13,000 people within a mile radius. So if we reach just 1%, that's 130 people. I think we'd be packed out if we just hit 1%. So that's our vision. We want to reflect our community here at the church. Now, to do that, you have to say, okay, if this is our vision, then how are we going to do it? And that's where the mission comes in. That's what I've been talking to you about last week, and I'm going to continue this week, and there's going to be some repeating here and there, but I just want you to get in your head. So we got to have a mission, and a mission statement answers three questions. This is what we do, this is how we do it, and this is who we do it for. Okay, That's what a mission statement t- does. Now, as I told you last week, we build our house. Uh, we kind of live in a neighborhood, and they're building all these houses. And um, I'm not a construction guy, but I can tell you this. Kind of looking from houses... I see three basic foundations. There's the slab, where they just pour the pad there. That's what our house is on, okay? Cold in the winter. Then there's the crawl space, you know, where it's kind of built up, and you can crawl underneath it, and you can work on the pipes. And then there's the basement, all right, where a house is built on a basement type of scenario. And even that has day basements, and then you have the non-day basements. So here's the thing this morning for us here at Warren. And I know we're small in numbers, but here's the thing. I'm going to do a little surgery on the DNA of our church, because every church has a DNA, okay? And here's something that you as a church, we as a church, have to decide in the next few months, and that is this, is we're in this foundation building. How are we going to carry out the mission of the church? This is going to be really huge. In other words, and really it comes down to go make disciples. So the big question for us is at Warren is how are we going to carry out discipleship at Warren? Now, most of us in here, I would say, grew up under a model that was really, really prevalent until probably the late 70s. It started giving way to a different model we'll talk about today. Most of us probably grew up in a church that had a bunch of programs. Anybody grew up in churches with a bunch of programs? I did. A bunch of programs. You had all these programs. A very program-driven church. All right. Um, Most of us, including myself, grew up in churches that were really focused on believers being in the worship service. That it was really about the we gather together as believers, and 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 the the sermons are really directed for believers who are there. And really, for the most part, our activities were believer central. Okay. So it was just basically for our believers. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, like we have game night coming up. That's really for us, right? That's just kind of here. 
That's just kind of for the believers. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, but in that model, and this is kind of thinking below the radar, the mindset is this. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen says, go make disciples, means go make converts. That model says what that means is go make converts. In other words, get people converted first, and then you disciple them. That's kind of that model mindset. Get them in the church, and then you, you, you disciple them. So really, <clears throat> conversion begins more or less outside of the church or through special outreach events like VBS or revivals or things like that or mission trips. But the church itself is not necessarily geared on a daily, regular, weekly basis for outsiders. In other words, you, outsiders are people who are not believers. It's okay if they come in and listen, but, and that's fine, and we hope some of them you know, get convicted and come to faith in Christ. But our overall ministry is really geared towards us, and then we go out and do events. Does that make sense? You all kind of follow me? That's kind of been the traditional model. Now, is that, a, is that model wrong? No, not really. But my question is, is it the best biblical model that we have? My question, I always come back, is, is this how Jesus did it? That's always how I look at it. Is this how Jesus did it? Did Jesus say, get converted, then I'll disciple you? Or, as I talked last week, did Jesus say, discipleship begins pre-conversion? And I think, in the Jesus model, it begins pre-conversion. Let me give you an example. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 1. Maybe it's kind of cool that we're a small group, so we're going to kind of hike through some passages this morning, just for a second. And... Um, John chapter 1, and we're just going to hike through some passages. We're not going to camp out on one today. We're just going to, I'm trying to give you an overview. So, you, I've already talked about this several times. I just want to hit it again. John chapter 1, verse 35. Um, of course, John the Baptist has been, he's baptized Jesus and things like this. And he talks about Jesus. And it says, uh, and so he's been talking about Jesus. And then it says again the next day, John was standing with uh, two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus pass by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples, remember, disciples simply means followers. So these were followers of John the Baptist. Heard him say this and followed Jesus. And when Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, what are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And verse 39, Jesus said, come and see. And it says, so they went and saw where he was staying and stayed with him that day. It was about 10 o'clock in the morning. So these guys are not, they're not committed to Jesus yet. Jesus, they're just saying, hey, we're interested. We're kind of curious about you. And so Jesus says, hey, come and see. I believe when you look at Jesus' model, it begins pre-conversion. Just inviting people to come check it out. Walk around, see what I'm doing, watch what I'm doing. Here's the thing, and I've talked to you about this again, and I keep hammering at it because this is a foundational thing. At Warren Baptist Church, we have to decide if we're going to be program-driven or process-driven when it comes to discipleship. We're going to have to decide if we're going to see that discipleship begins at conversion or if it actually begins pre-conversion and leads to conversion and continues after conversion. Okay, there's a difference here in how we do things. What would that look like for us in the future? Well, it might be that we have a Christianity 101 class. A class that's specifically designed for people who are not believers, who are just, they come into church and say, you know, I don't know. 
the reality is, you know, most of us grew up in the program-driven model in America where most people had a basic understanding of the Bible, or at least there was a theistic mindset, okay? It's not that way anymore. Have you ever watched those man-on-the-street interviews? I was going to pull some off, but I didn't get time, where people interview people and ask them, you know, who built the ark? Like, uh, Moses? You know, and things like that. And, I mean, to us, it's, a, it's an easy question. But a lot of people today, especially the millennials, the young, they don't know. We live in an increasingly biblically illiterate society. So when they walk into the church, do we not maybe offer, here's a first step. We have a class called Christianity 101, and it's a place where you can ask any question you want. There's no stupid questions, and this is a place where you can learn about our faith. Again, if you view it as a process, maybe it's hosting Bible study groups in our homes and out in local hangouts. The only problem I see with this area is we don't have a Starbucks across the street. I'm not a big proponent of Starbucks, but it's a great hangout, okay? (laughs) But, you know, that we don't, you know, but maybe we do a a small group somewhere out in a community in a a coffee house, somewhere where people can join us. You know, what amazed me when I was doing church planning in Carmel, uh, there there was a lot of Bible study groups that, that I were noticing meeting in coffee houses, and I attached myself to a couple of those, but I had a couple that I'd go up and say, hey, I noticed you guys are reading the Bible, yeah cool, what you're reading? They'd tell me, oh, that's really neat. And I would engage them. You know what? They wouldn't talk to me much. Like, well, that's nice. And I would go sit down and think, guys, why don't you just say, come on over and sit with us? You never know who out there is searching. You know, you would be amazed how many times, because I lived in Starbucks half the time, you would be amazed how many conversations I would hear going around me about faith from people who were not believers. But they were getting these discussions about faith. And those were great opportunities just to chime in. Of course, you had to act like you weren't eavesdropping, but say, hey, I kind of heard you talking about that. Just uh, you got a question about that? Things like that. But again, maybe the implication is as we begin to move more out of this building out into the community as well. Maybe the implication is, is that we do events and ministries in our community for the express purpose of just come and see, just learn us, meet us, see what we do, okay? Now, I know we're not a big church, I know we don't have tons of money, but I bet you we've got a few things we can do. I'll throw you a few of them out there. I bet you there's some ladies in here that can cook really, really well. I know from the demographics, we got a lot of single moms over here. I wonder what would happen if we ever did some sort of cooking class or two for the ladies in our community to teach them how to shop, and how to cook simple meals. That wouldn't cost anything. We just have to use our kitchen. Invite them over, maybe. Maybe we begin by taking the meals to them and having a class on cooking on site. Something like that. You know, we have a lot of single parents. What if at some point we did some sort of mom's day out and advertise it in our community? We'd obviously have to limit it. We don't have a lot of space. That's one of our struggles. But at least we could, we could say, hey, you know, for... Ten people, we can do this. Now, again, that would take background checks and liability. I get that. But those are things that we could do that just basically saying, come and see. Just meet us. Just rub shoulders with us. Okay? And the thing is, it's like maybe Sunday morning worship. Right now, again, we're kind of in a foundational phase. This is kind of all us, kumbaya. We're, we're kind of in here. But if we start moving in this direction, our Sunday morning worships 
services need to be at least sensitive to the fact that unbelievers are out there. Okay? Let me give you an example of how that would work from a preacher's standpoint. And one of my favorite preachers, and he, he, he very is sensitive to seekers. And this is one of the best illustrations I heard. He, he started a series on Jonah. And here's how he started it. He said, I'm aware that some of you in here this morning are checking out church and you don't, you don't know if you buy into this whole Christianity thing. He said, I understand that. And I said, we're going to look at this story about Jonah. And I know that some of you are, don't really believe this whole thing about God getting swallowed by a big fish. In fact, a lot of you probably think it's a myth. And you know what? That's okay. If you think it's a myth, that's okay. However, there's some great things we can learn in this story about God and about our interaction with God. Now, some of us, the Christians say, no, it's not a myth. I get you. I believe it's not a myth. I believe it's real. But you see what he just did? He just disarmed the unbelievers in the midst. And he did go and say, now, I believe it's real because Jesus believed it's real. But if you don't believe that story is necessarily real, there's still some great things we can apply to our lives. You see what he did? He just disarmed people and invited them into the conversation. And again, in the past, and I've been guilty of this, is like, it's not a myth, and you better believe it's not a myth. You know, that just pushes people back, especially in our culture, because people are skeptical. But again, if we begin to view discipleship as pre-conversion, and we're opening ourselves and in, in, in getting into our community, inviting our community in, it also uh, it has how we do things. Because I see a lot of churches do outreach events, and they want people to come into their church, and when the people get into their church, they have no idea what to do. There's no next step. They don't, they, don't, they don't understand what's going on. It's not sensitive to them at all in any way, and so they just leave. And so I see that over and over again. Here's another thing, by the way. Here's how we can do this as a congregation. If you see a guest, greet them, which we do a very good job of, but also offer to sit with them. Would you like to sit with me? Okay. And, and, you know, and, you know if, 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 if you see, hey, we kind of have this connection point, I maybe, you know, I have a connection point with him, then definitely you need to connect with him. And you know what? If they come back the next week, you know, invite them to sit with you again. Get to know them. Hey, how you doing? What's going on in your life? And you know what? Invite them to go out to eat after church. Hey, next week, or third time back, hey, let's go out to eat. And you know what? If you can't afford it, I'm sure we can scrounge up the money to help pay for your lunch and pay for their lunch. But those are ways that we can do to just build this whole come and see attitude with churches. Now, if you go to John chapter 2, and we're not going to read all the way through. So Jesus, uh, as you know, they, he invites these guys to come and see. And then they go and they get Peter and, and, and all this. And Jesus starts gathering followers. And in John chapter 2, we have Jesus going to the wedding feast of Canaan. So these guys are just hanging out with him. They have not made a commitment necessarily at this point. They're just tagging along. Okay, and I'm not going to read through the passage. You know what it is. Uh, Jesus goes to a, a wedding feast. They run out of wine. His mom says, hey, can you fix this? And so Jesus says, and so what these guys are watching is how Jesus responds to needs. How he's responding to the need. They're also watching how he responds to his own mother, too. All right, so they're watching Jesus respond to needs. And then in verse 11, if you just look at that, it says, this says this, that Jesus performed, this is when he did this miracle, this first sign, there's seven signs in the Gospel of John, in Cana of Galilee, he displayed his glory, and here's what, notice what happened here, and his disciples believed in him. 
Now, the question is, had they become fully committed followers of Christ at this point? I don't think so. But what's happening here is they're starting to say, hey, this guy's different. This guy has power to do some things. I've never seen this before. Okay? And I gave you a working definition of a mission statement. I'm not saying this would ultimately be our mission statement. This is just one of my favorites. To turn irreligious people into fully devoted followers of Christ. Okay? Because the mission for the church is the same. Go and make disciples, right? Of all nations. Every church, that's our mission statement. Just different churches say it differently. I particularly like this one. Here's what I believe is happening. In the process, these guys are tagging along with Jesus and watching him interact with his family, watching him uh, respond to needs, listening to his teaching as they're walking along the road, just hanging out with him. These guys are starting to believe. This guy is the Messiah. Okay, so they spend time traveling with Jesus, they watch Jesus, they see Jesus do miracles. Discipleship is a process, and it begins at pre-conversion. Okay, so again, how would that look at Warren? If we structure our things and do ministry so that people have chance just to come and hang out with fully devoted followers of Christ, how do we respond? How do we talk? How do we act? How do we interact with each other? That's huge, y'all. Nothing turns off people from the church than the church sometimes. Because we fight sometimes. We're all sinners, I get it. But we need to reflect Christ in our interaction with each other. And so these guys are watching this, okay? And so, now the other thing they get to watch, if you go down to verse 15, so they leave the wedding feast at Cana, and we're just going to hop through some of this. They go to Jerusalem. Uh, It's... uh, so they go to Jerusalem, the Passover is near, and they walk in there, Jesus goes to the temple, you know, all the doves and people selling things, and it says this, after making a whip, verse 15, out of cords, he, drew, he drove everyone out of the temple complex with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers table and overthrew the tables. Now, if you were one of those guys hanging out, you would be like, back up, back up, not sure what this guy's doing, he's gone off his rocker. We're going to get killed, okay? But look at what happens. Here's what he told them. Jesus told them, I'll just look up there. He poured out them. He's also told them they're selling doves. Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. What these guys saw right here is Jesus had a zeal for the glory of God. They, he had a zeal for his father. So they saw this passion in Jesus here as he does that. Again, discipleship is a process and it begins pre-conversion. These guys are kind of hanging out. Now, the, what I want to say next, the first time I ran across this passage, just it really kind of blew my mind. And this is a struggle, I think, for some of us in the church. And this one really was a struggle for me. John chapter 3, Jesus meets Nicodemus. He's in Jerusalem. We don't read of the disciples being around him at all in this interaction. This is apparently a private meeting. The disciples are off somewhere uh, doing, you know, going getting groceries or whatever and uh, things like that. So we don't, we don't really read much of an interaction. But if you go uh, in later in chapter 3, I believe it talks about Jesus did many signs and miracles, uh, but he didn't uh, address himself to the people or, uh, because he knew what was in the heart of men, so things like that. But look at verse chapter 4. So they leave Jerusalem, and they're heading towards Samaria. And I want you to read what it says in verse 1 of chapter 4. When Jesus saw that the Pharisees heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John. You see an attraction happening here? People are starting to attract themselves to Jesus. 
And, no, and he's making and baptizing more disciples than John. And here's the parenthetical statement that John adds in verse 2, which was huge. Although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but who was baptizing? His disciples were. This is before Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is before that happens. This is, this is before they actually, I believe, left their occupations to follow Jesus. This is before Matthew chapter 4 where Jesus shows up and says, Follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. In other words, it's in this statement. Now, here's the deal. And hang with me, all. And some of y'all may tighten up with this, but here's the deal. I think in the church, so many times, we don't allow people to minister or even get involved until after the conversion experience. Okay, this is huge. This is a big debate. Do we allow them to belong before they believe or wait till they believe before they can belong? This is a big debate. Okay, what I see is Jesus allowing people who were beginning to make a commitment to him, allow them to participate at some level in ministry. Now, this is huge, and this is, you might say, I don't know about this. Here's what I'm saying. I'm not saying that in the church you let unbelievers be in leadership positions. There's a difference here. But what if, let's say we do a backyard Bible club and we got some people that are kind of visiting and coming to church and they say, hey, can I help? Do we say yes? They're not necessarily members yet, but they're plugging more and more in. They may not even made a profession yet, but they're, they're wanting to belong in some way. Do we let them do that? I see a lot of you shaking your head. Yes, good. I think that's what we have to do. People today are looking to belong. Now, some people say, well, you shouldn't do this because that confuses them. No, you mentor them all along the way. This isn't, hey, you're now in because you've got to serve Kool-Aid. No, you know, it, it, that's not how that works. It's, you, we continue to mentor them, okay? But so many times in the church, it's like, no, you've got you to be a member before you can do anything. And yet, when I see Jesus, I, I'm seeing him letting these guys do ministry kind of before we have these big moments. Now, again, he, they're under his supervision. He, and I'm not talking, you know, we're going to let unbelievers baptize. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm talking about, are there certain areas that we know that we can allow people to plug in to at least start getting their feet wet? Okay, that's a question we have to ask. Some churches say no. When I look at Jesus, I say, well, maybe we should. I told you last week I've been reading the biography of Adoniram Judson. And I told you that he was an extremely brilliant young man and really had become more or less an atheist, even though he grew up in a minister's home. And then I told you last week that uh, he, he was going back from New York. He thought he was going to be a playwright. didn't work out. He was heading back. He ended up spending the night at his uncle's house, and his uncle wasn't there. His uncle was a pastor, but he wasn't there, but a young minister was, and Adoniram spent most of the night talking to this young minister and was just blown away because this guy wasn't rigid like his dad was, and, and he just kind of suddenly had this different view of God, and so he really engaged with this minister. And then he travels down the road. He stays at a little rural inn. And here's the guy next door is dying. He finds out the next morning, if you remember the story from last week, that it was his best friend from college who had basically turned him away from God. And all Adoniram could think that night was lost. If God is real, then he's lost. He's in eternity without Christ. Adoniram did not become a believer at that point. He goes home, but he's really starting to search. And he's really starting to struggle. Now what was really interesting was they had just opened a seminary not too far away. 
And Adoniram wanted to go to seminary. He was not a believer. You know what they did? They let him go to the seminary. He was still not a believer when he enrolled. But he met a professor there who could spar intellectually just as well as he could. In his interaction with students and in the process, Adoniram became a follower of Christ. And Adoniram became the first missionary from North America to go overseas to the Burmese people. What happened there? There was a process God was taking him through. And the believers were willing to be a part of that process. Now again, I believe discipleship begins pre-conversion. One thing we have to decide as a church is as we have outsiders, people come into the church, and as they become more and more involved, are we going, how are we going to let them get involved on a limited basis? So they have a sense of, hey, I'm plugging in. This is something here I'm getting here, and, and I'm really... But again, we still mentor them along the way. We still share the faith with them along the way. If you go to John chapter 4, right after that, Jesus, of course, they go to the Samaritan village. Jesus, the disciples are sitting there watching his interaction with the outsider, a Samaritan woman, which was shocking because you didn't really, guys didn't talk to women, and especially a Samaritan woman. And they, they witnessed her reaction to the good news. They witnessed the villagers coming out and their reaction to the good news. They witnessed the hunger of, of people for the Savior. And Jesus says, look, guys, the fields are white, you know, and things like that. Then later in John chapter 4, they witnessed Jesus' interaction with another outsider, a Roman official, whose son is dying. And again, they see Jesus do something incredible. He does long-distance healing. This is before the Internet. I mean, you know, that was pretty wild. Long-distance healing. So, so these guys are seen. Now, in John chapter 5, there's no disciples. Jesus goes back to Jerusalem. And most Bible scholars believe that when you put the timeline of the Gospels together, what happens here is at this point, Jesus lets his guys go home. He goes back to Jerusalem. They're not with him. They go back to their occupation. I believe Jesus lets them go back home to think about it. And again, I talked about this a couple months ago. That's where Matthew 4 comes in. Jesus comes back and says, follow me. And these guys drop their fishing nets. They leave their fathers. They leave their occupation and follow him. You wouldn't do that for an itinerant rabbi you didn't know. They knew him. They had seen him in action. And now when he came to call, they were there to make the answer. So let me say this. Discipleship begins pre-conversion, but it leads to conversion. Okay? It leads to conversion. Again, if you look at Jesus' mission to the church, go, therefore, and make disciples. We talked about that. As you are going, make followers, people who are attracted to Christ because of how we live. And then of all nations, and here's the conversion point, baptizing. Now, baptism is not what saves you. But what we see here is that that follows conversion, right? By the way, Baptists, the Bible knows nothing of unbaptized believers. Just saying. In the New Testament, you believed, you were baptized. Okay? So again, Jesus, it leads to conversion. Now, I, I want to say this because some people so many times misunderstand this whole idea of being sensitive to seekers. They say, well, you're just saying a social gospel. No, I'm not. God is not glorified if we just go do good things in the neighborhood. That's nice, that's wonderful. God is glorified when we bring people to the cross. Okay? God is glorified when people come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. Our vision, if you go back to our vision statement of what we say we want to be, is we want to be impacting all people for Christ. That's our vision. 
And so if our mission is to turn irreligious people into fully devoted followers of Christ, then we have to think, how are we going to enable that process to go along? So as far as our sermons, they need to lead to a point of commitment. Or our sermon series need to lead to a point of commitment. Christianity 101 class leads to commitment. Okay? Are you going to take this step? Are you going to follow Christ? Things like that. Another thing I would argue for, it may not happen right away, but if you take this process step, I would say you ought to have a membership class at some point for people to go through. Why? First of all, everybody should have a testimony. That's a great time to hear testimonies. And if they don't, then we want to help them follow Christ. Okay? Second of all, we need to plug people into church. Find out what their gifts are. Find out how they can be involved in the church, okay? I, I would just argue this. I grew up the same way. Come forward. Are you a believer? Yes, I am. If you've all believed baptism, yes, I am. Good, you're in. And I'm afraid that what we've, we've, the unintended consequences of that has been is churches with humongous membership roles and about a third actually show up. And I've seen this happen over and over. And when there's a big vote at the church, suddenly people that you've never seen in your life show up because they're members. They're not engaged. They're not involved. They're not, they're not growing spiritually necessarily, as, at least as far as we know, as far as interacting with us, but they're members. And again, I think a membership class sets the bar a little higher and says, look, if you're going to be a part of the family here, then this is what we expect. And this is how we want you to be involved because we all want to belong. All right? So Jesus' discipleship model, I believe, begins pre-conversion, it leads to conversion, and it continues after conversion. Again, maybe this is oversimplification, but sometimes it's like, oh, we got them saved, good, hope, have a nice life, let's move on and get some more people reached for Christ. And sometimes I feel like we've left people in the dust. I've been guilty of it. Jesus, if you look... If the timeline's correct, John chapter 5, the disciples aren't with Jesus, they're back home. Jesus then comes back, Matthew chapter 4, and says, follow me. And these guys have heard Jesus, they've walked with Jesus, they're like, hey. And they drop their fishing nets, they leave their business, they follow their father. If that's the correct timeline, then in John chapter 6, they are now with Jesus again. And I want you to know something, or see something here. John chapter 6, verse 46. So the disciples have followed, they have made the commitment. They've left their fishing business. They've left their father. They're saying, we are in. And here's what I want you to see. John chapter uh, chapter 6, verse 4. It says this. Now, the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. And it says, therefore, when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming towards him, he asked Philip, where will we buy bread so these people can eat? Look at what it says. He asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was doing. He didn't do that before. Now that they've made the commitment, he's ratcheted up the discipleship process. At this point, Jesus changes his teaching style. He starts teaching in parables. And he's asking these guys to start seeing with spiritual eyes. His disciples are called apostles. Mark says he called them to be with him. He is now ratcheting up the process. He is trying to get his disciples to think, act, and invest like he is. And a few months later, he'll start talking about the cross. 
Don't you find it interesting that when Jesus first said, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, by the way, they're going to crucify me. He didn't do that because they weren't ready for that. But as the process continued, he got to a point where he says, guys, I'm going to be crucified. He keeps ratcheting up the process. Discipleship is a process that begins pre-conversion, leads to conversion, and continues after conversion. Look at Matthew 28. Go as you're going. Make disciples. Keep on making disciples of all nations. Baptizing. Here's that commitment point. Them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then the next part, of, um, I don't have the slide. Teaching them. Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. There is that next step. So again, discipleship doesn't end with conversion, doesn't begin with conversion. It's before conversion, leads to conversion, and continues after conversion. Now, that's not a guarantee that everybody, that if we kind of think this way and retool ourselves a little bit differently, doesn't mean everybody's going to come in here is going to be, it's going to be wonderful, because, you know, Jesus had a few that didn't make it. Judas, he had disappointments. Peter denied him. The disciples all fled, but after the resurrection, when it all came together, they were totally sold out and ready to die for him. So here's my point, Warren. I, I just, in this foundation, again, we're laying foundation right now. We have to decide as a church how we're going to carry out the mission statement. We have to decide, are we going to be a program-driven church or a process-driven church? Now, I'm not saying you can't ever have any programs in a process-driven church. But you've got to think process-driven, not just program-driven. We have to think, are we going to look at our ministries and say, how can we engage outsiders, people that aren't in our church? How can we include them in ministry on a limited basis? And then when they make that conversion step, then how can we involve them more and more? Okay? Maybe assistant leaders, assistant deacons, assistant, you know, whatever. You know, after the resurrection, Jesus then delegates the ministry to them. So he moves these guys now out to do ministry. How can we do that? Okay. Maybe it's that you also develop eventually a leadership pipeline as people want to become leaders. They pair up with people who are leaders and their assistance to those leaders, and at some point, they become leaders. Okay? So, I would say if we begin to think more process, and if we get out there and engage our community, and we begin to think more process in how we do things, a discipleship process, I think you're going to see more outsiders involved. They're going to start coming. They're going to kind of know the steps. They're going to understand what's going on. I think you're going to see a lot more seekers become committed followers of Christ. And I think you're going to see people growing into leadership positions and things like that. And you're going to see the church grow. But it's going to take a different mindset. So here's my question to you as a church. Are we going to think process or progress? You might have to chew on that one. Are we going to think process or programs? Again, how would a person who's walking in here doesn't know anything about church, what is our process to help them? Now, ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit's work. Ultimately, God has to do the conviction. But we can at least, aren't we fellow laborers with Christ? 
Aren't we partners with Christ? So we can at least do our part to enable the Holy Spirit to work the best he can in their lives. That's my whole point. Because God invites us to join him in his work. Now here's a question for you and I personally. Are you personally helping anybody through the discipleship process right now? Is there somebody that you and I are mentoring? There's a friend that I've developed a friendship with. He is an unbeliever, very staunch unbeliever. Um, and I'm slowly trying to engage him in conversations. Um, he said something to me the other day. He said, hey, I'm a reverend now. And I said, what? He said, well, I got some friends who want me to marry them, so I got a, an ordination certificate from the first church or whatever. It was an internet thing. And in the eyes of the law, he could actually marry these people. And then he called me back, and he said, I hope I didn't offend you. I know you went through all that. And I said, well, I said, you know what? We need to sit down and have a good theology 101 talk. Let's talk theology now that you're a reverend. And he kind of laughed a little bit, but I said, you know, we'll get together and talk theology. Now, to me, that, you know, my knee-jerk reaction was, oh, I don't like that. But my, my thought was, well, maybe this opens the door. We can sit down and talk theology. We can talk about Christ, okay, and continue this conversation. But again, are you helping anybody through the discipleship process. I know these sermon series are not like the typical sermon series, how to deal with fear and anger and all those things, and those are important. But right now, we're, I just view us as a, as a restart foundational stage. We've got to have the vision, which I think we're getting. Then how are we going to do it? Are we going to be process-driven or program-driven? That's going to develop how we structure things in the ministry here from this point forward. And that's going to, I think, impact the future of the church. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for everybody who could make it this morning, and I pray that this message was clear. I just pray that whenever we look at doing ministries, we'll always start with how did Jesus do it? And although we didn't get in this morning the opportunity, I think when we look at the Apostle Paul, we see him also taking people through a discipleship process. From calling them his son to later calling him his fellow laborer in Christ. And so, Father, I just pray that as a church we'll look at how we're doing ministry and are we going to model it as best we can after the model we see in Scripture. And Father, I know that for a lot of us this is a challenge because we didn't grow up maybe necessarily with those models. And it's easy to grow up, do what we grew up with. But Father, help, help us to go beyond that and just look at Scripture and say, is there a better, perhaps more biblical way of doing ministry, especially in a post-Christian culture? It's my desire, Father, that Warren Baptist Church, one day this room will be full of people of all different races, ethnic backgrounds, generations that one day we will see more and more people follow in believer's baptism, that a few years from now, the neighborhoods around us will be different. We're seeing changes for the good because of us, because we had an opportunity to partner with you in your work. You have us here for a reason. You call us to take up our cross 
and you call us to sacrifice. And so, Father, I know that what we're being challenged with is difficult for many of us, but I pray that we'll be willing to take our cross, be willing to sacrifice for your kingdom, because that's why we're here, to bring glory to you. So, Father, I just thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ, because that's why we're here today. He gave it all for us, and we should give it all for him. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.